and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 192, recorded on June 6th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. It's good to be back in the studio with you. Let's do the news. We start this week with some fundamentals. The Grand Unified Bootloader, better known as Grub, recently added backup and restore functionality. What does that mean? Well, as it stands right now, the very first thing Grub install does when you're getting Grub set up is pretty much wipe out whatever install you had before. <laughs> yep. That's bad news if something goes wrong. So after this change, Grub will first back up whatever modules and other config and settings and important Grub bits are there, then install. And if something goes wrong, it's able to restore from that backup. Also, don't worry if the install goes right, it cleans up afterwards. Hmm. This seems like a pretty essential feature. And also this week, you XFS file system users got some features in Grub. Grub now understands the recent XFS flag for marking file systems that need repair. And it will also print a debug message for the user so you know what's going on. You know, a little bit ago, the developers of XFS took care of this 2038 problem. You know, the future. Uh, they they made they made a patch for the future, but Grub has to also support this. And this recent update of Grub includes support for the year 2038 problem that XFS developers solved. So you can have your future, your bootloader, and your file system. Jumping up a layer in the stack, our favorite audio and video subsystem got a nice update this week. Pipewire 0.3.29 adds support for old Ubuntu and Debian-based distros. So even if you're stuck in the past, your audio and video handling doesn't have to be. Along with a good-sized list of bug fixes, some real-world features landed. Number one for a lot of us doing virtual meetings is WebRTC Echo Canceling was added. Future versions of Pipewire will do additional integration and justice to this feature, but this is straight up, any way you look at it, a quality of life improvement for every single desktop Linux user that is using Pipewire. For Wes and myself, there is some nice improvements like latency reporting that is now implemented and actually represents all the way up into the Jack applications. So we're going to use the crap out of that. And there is better handling for multi-channel input profiles. The Pipewire project also mentioned in this release that they've migrated from Freenode to OFTC.net. Overall, just a lot of polish was added this time around. Not a ton of new essential core features, but a lot of quality of life improvements. And you're right, there are some steady gains around things like WebRTC. If you take a look at the Git repo, you'll see these features have been brewing for quite some time. But what always takes the longest is that plumbing and porcelain getting it hooked up so that you and I can actually take advantage of it. Well, going right along with those nice new things, Firefox 89 landed this week. And really the anticipated thing about this release is Proton UI. There are some actual under-the-hood improvements, but the cleanup of the UI has been the big conversation around the 89 release. The biggest changes are in how tabs appear in the browser and how websites behave while they are in the background. Mozilla says they discovered more than 50% of users have four-plus tabs open at all times and use that to help guide the tabs redesign. I don't know, only four? Yeah, I think at least four. <laughs> All those tabs now float above the URL bar, each one in its own individual rectangle. And while the tabs look different, they still behave the same way. 
You can click and drag open tabs to rearrange their order or drag them outside of the tab bar to open a website in a new Firefox window. And I kind of went to town testing this plane with it, grouping, you know, control clicking, shift clicking. All of it was pretty snappy and intuitive. I also had to play around with it. And if your distro hasn't updated yet, you can grab Firefox from Flathub, which is published by the Mozilla developers and is very current. And it's a nice way to have a the most recent version than whatever your distro ships as well. And I, I think they knocked it out of the park. Um, I, I really like the new look. I, I often do. <laughs> I'm kind of a sucker for these new things. But I, I realized after I saw it that I, this was something that uh, was, was kind of needed and maybe even sooner than we got it. But now it's nice to see it here. Uh, also, I really appreciate the way they've, I guess, modified how notifications are displayed, you could say. So instead of getting like a whole bunch of individual onesie twosies now, they've merged or I guess you could say consolidate all of the pop-ups into a single panel. So instead of getting an individual pop-up each time, say, Zoom wants access to your mic and webcam and then the other permissions, they'll all just be there in one box. And you can just say yes, yes, or no, no. And that's really nice. and makes it a lot quicker. Additionally, iOS and Android users aren't completely left out of the fun. Some of the elements of the redesign have been brought over to the mobile app versions. Uh, the Android version seeing the most work done there. And also nice to see web render now enabled on Linux with the NVIDIA binary driver on all desktop environments. Well, if you felt a buzz in the air this week, maybe the hair stood up on the back of your neck. That might have been the good news from the Web Extensions Community Group, who announced they're forging a common architecture for future web extensions and is inviting developers to join the effort. But still my beating heart, Wes. Um, <laughs> we tease. I mean, this actually sounds neat. Yes, it's another web group. Yes, it's a, it's another, it's another like organization to decide standards. But this one seems like it has a real purpose. It's shortened to WIGSIGIG. Um, no, that's not how you say it at all, but it's WECG and it consists of members from some of the major browser developers you'd expect. And that's why I think this actually matters. You've got employees there from Apple. You got employees from Mozilla. You got employees from Microsoft. And you got contributors from other projects in the open source community all coming together to talk about how to build a common web extensions community. That that common architecture they're going to work on may actually result in something. As for specifics, well, we don't have a ton. This is pretty new, but the web extensions community group say they've got two main overarching goals. Number one, make extension creation easier for developers by specifying a consistent model and common core of functionality, APIs, and permissions, sort of a base playing field for all of this new breed of extension. Number two, Outline an architecture that enhances performance and is even more secure and resistant to abuse than what we've got today. Hmm, that's interesting. I also would not be surprised to see Apple be one of the first to message on this just because their WWDC event is the Monday that this comes out, actually. And so that is a great platform for them to talk about what they're doing with their Safari browser. Uh, we will stream that event with limited snarky commentary at jblive.tv during the WWDC keynote if you'd like to join us. A big official congratulations to Michael Larable. Congratulations! On June 5th, Pharonix turned 17 years old. Wow, that's amazing. And you gotta respect that kind of longevity. And as customary at this point, Larable's offering a discounted membership plan. He notes it has been kind of a tough year for ads on Pharonix. And also, 
you know, based on the, the audience that he's targeting, ad block usage remains pretty, pretty high. Yeah, I'll admit to being one of those offenders sometimes myself. It sure sounds like it has been a bit of a struggle for Larble and for Veronix this year. He noted that ad rates continued to struggle throughout the pandemic, which I know has affected many out there. He also noted that Veronix really continues to survive right now only through his own relentless 100 plus hour work weeks trying to just make ends meet. Mm, that sounds like a dangerous recipe for burnout. Um, you know, over the years, Larble has gotten some shade. Um, you know, some people who've pushed back on his reporting. Maybe he touched on a nerve, he critiqued something that somebody's really proud of, or or maybe there was just an accident, a mistake in his reporting. Those do happen sometimes. And I feel like the viral nature of comments and the internet have prevented our community from really appreciating kind of the remarkable workhorse that Larble is. And honestly, what a resource Pharonix is. And I think when you're really, really deep into Linux news like Wes and I are, you realize that legitimately one of the problems our community faces is that there are only a small handful of original reporting outlets and that pretty much everything else is reporting on reporting. And that is not healthy. That is not a good way to understand and get a full scope of the free software community. A lot of what gets written about or covered in Linux media at all, be it podcasts or YouTube or written is truly just created by a small, small number of people. And Larbell is easily one of the top producers in that small group. He digs deep into kernel stories. He does the tedious benchmarks. He tracks long-term project development. And the guy does it seven days a week. There's times when Wes and I are sitting here in the, re in the studio recording land on a Sunday and Larble's posting stuff to Phronix. He's working that, that seventh day of the week producing content. And it's such a resource. And I think it's because it's been around for 17 years and because a lot of us who are consuming news content are, are pretty removed from the process of creating it, it's not fully appreciated just how vital Phronix is in the free software information source. You know, we like to talk a lot about how great it is sort of reporting and watching and being a part of the free software ecosystem because so much happens out in the open. But that only counts if people tell you about it. Unless you're following all these mailing lists, you don't really know what's going on or all the exciting updates happening to Grub. In many cases, Michael Larble is the one following those lists and telling us all about all the great stuff that's happening. Yeah. And, you know, 17 years gives them a history as well. And, um, uh... I think our I think our community is better off with Pharonix in it. If you'd like to show your support and hopefully allow for a more viable year ahead, consider joining Pharonix Premium, making a PayPal tip, or just turning off Adblock. You know, it's not just his own time here. He's got a great deal of electrical and power expenses. If you've ever seen the crazy benchmarking setups he's got. And of course, he's also developing and hosting tools like open benchmarking. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in credit for 60 days on your new account. And of course, you support the show. Make it possible for this here show to be free. Linode is our hosting provider of choice, and that's why we want to recommend them to you guys. Everything we've built over the last couple of years, every single time when we've done an evaluation, Linode has come out on top. Their infrastructure is solid, fast, and flexible. You can focus on your project 
not on your infrastructure. You get 11 data centers to choose from, and every service level is backed by the best customer support in the business. And when it matters, it really matters. By phone or ticket, they're going to be there for you 24-7. Linode's been around since 2003, and at every step of the way, they've asked themselves, how can we better use Linux to accomplish this next task? When they became their own ISP years ago, yeah, they're their own ISP, they asked themselves, can we use Linux at the networking layer in a way that hasn't been done before? And as long-timers who use their service can tell, they really, truly are Linux geeks. A few months ago, I set up a $10 a month Linode for Minecraft for my kids. I wanted to create a safe environment for them. And Linode has a one-click deployment for the Minecraft server where they'll ask you like all the specifics, NPC settings, game mode type, and a bunch of other stuff. You enter it in, hit submit, they generate the server for you. And then, of course, I went and checked it out, and it's built in a really intelligent way. And what's impressive about Linode is it is a great value at whatever level of box you're getting. So, yeah, you know, I've got I've got a box that I use for sync thing, and i got a box I use for my kids' Minecraft and a couple of personal things like that. But I also use Linode for back-end infrastructure for Jupyter Broadcasting that has to hold up to serious traffic or has to do large processing jobs and move surprisingly dumb amounts of data. <laughs> and it just does it like a champ. And of course, they have tons of distributions to choose from, and it can be a great platform to learn as well. Security, Kubernetes, Terraform, you can mess with all of that on Linode and mess around with scales that you really could never build at home while using our $100 credit that you can just get by going to linode.com slash LAN. You can learn something, you can deploy something, and you can support the show. There are a lot of ways to host out there. I mean, there's just a lot of various companies. Some of them have some crazy business plans, but they're out there and they're going to offer it to you. But there is a reason why the JB crew and so many in our community choose Linode every single time. So go see for yourself and get that $100 at linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. Are you sick of overpaying for cell service? Of course you are. So go see how much you could save and then take $25 off that at Linux.ting.com. They have great plans. If you need just a tiny bit of data, you need a ton of data, you need unlimited minutes, very little minutes, you know, all of that stuff. They've really made it simple and very approachable. Like, for example, they have Ting's Set 12 plan. That gives you 12 gigs of data, unlimited talk, unlimited text for $35 a month. Guys, $35 a month. They also have great family plans and flexible plans that allow you to use data as you need and all of that. So, so start by going to linux.ting.com and just appreciate a simpler, smarter way to do mobile. Ting has multiple networks you can pick from as well, so you're going to find something that has great signal in your area. And that also means you can bring your device if you want to. Because Ting's network support is so broad, they have a ginormous compatibility. You, you also can pick something up new. In fact, you can get stuff new directly from Ting. The process sets a bar for mobile. So you just start at linux.ting.com. You go check your current phone. They make that ridiculously simple. I don't know why all the carriers haven't stolen this idea yet. Once you put the information in for your phone compatibility check, it tells you if it's going to work or not, and they send you a SIM card. You pop that in. And you're pretty much done. You know, it's like a couple of minutes to set up an account at most and get the phone going. 15 minutes later, you got a phone on Ting and you're paying less than you ever thought was possible for mobile. And it's that kind of transformative shift where you realize you're never going to go back to the old way of doing mobile. So go to linux.ting.com. Take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit and support the show. There's never been a better time to try Ting Mobile. They've upgraded their plans to the next level, and I've been a Ting customer for a long time. I can attest that Ting has really, really got some competitive plans now. So go try them out. Linux.ting.com. 
OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 is now officially available. And maybe you're wondering why we're mentioning this latest minor release, but it's noteworthy for more than a few reasons. The first of those is that it's the first Leap release that's using the exact same binary packages as SUSE Linux Enterprise. Leap 15.3 is based on SUSE Linux Enterprise 15 SP3 and should see at least 18 months of updates. That's attractive right there, but what really caught our attention is OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 is pulling in DNF 4.7. Yeah, DNF, Fedora's Package Manager. Now, I think DNF has been available for a while, but there's some additional work that's been done in Leap 15.3, right? Yeah, you could get it pretty easily in 15.2, but it wasn't so easy to actually use it to go get any packages, at least without configuring it all yourself. But now there's a couple of packages you can install, one which enables DNF to use the repositories that you've configured for use with Yast and Zipper, or another one that lets you just set up stable repository configurations independent of Zipper and Yast. So you've got some flexible options. The other really impressive piece to this DNF support is it's not just installing packages. It's now possible to upgrade from Leap to Tumbleweed powered by DNF. That's ridiculously great. I, I got to try this at some point. This, this puts it back on the try radar. I want to play around with DNF on SUSE. And I like that Leap's going to have 18 months of support, that it's been built from the enterprise binaries. It's a lot of really nice competitive offerings. And you know, again, like we say this all the time, but in reflection on the CentOS changes, it's nice to see value added to distributions like Leap here like this. It gives OpenSUSE and SUSE Enterprise Linux a compatibility that I think gives developers some comfort. Well, something making Robert McQueen, president of the GNOME Foundation Board of Directors, a little uncomfortable is the GNOME Project's finances. Writing this week in a blog post, he said that the GNOME project needs to broaden its focus in order to attract more new users and ultimately to be able to raise funds from new organizations outside of their traditional reach. If they aren't able to find some new funding sources, they may need to scale back in some of their efforts. The latest budget approved by the board of directors has the foundation spending more money than they're currently taking in. Now, of course, that's never a good policy, but the GNOME Foundation actually has a reserves policy that dictates they're not allowed to do this based on, well, experiences from the past. Easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, right now, it seems that their financial situation is good. They haven't run into problems yet, but they can see it on the horizon. So they want to find new sources of funding. And it seems like they have to move beyond their current reach to get those new funds. In fact, McQueen commented, To raise funds from new sources, the foundation needs to take the message and ideals of GNOME and open source software to new, wider audiences that we can help. We've been developing themes such as affordability, privacy, trust, and education as promising areas for new programs that broaden our impact. The goal is to find projects and funding that allow us to both invest in the GNOME community and find new ways for FOSS to benefit people who aren't already in our community. Now, when a project starts talking about raising funds and starts talking about including people who aren't in our community yet, you worry that perhaps that money is going to go towards 
trying to reach out to people who just simply don't have any interest in development. But I think they've learned lessons from the past. I, I think they are they're being proactive here. And McQueen had a message for current and future board members. I'd like to make clear that I see this, reaching the outside world and finding funding to support that, as the main priority and responsibility of the board for the next term. We need to understand our financial situation and the trade-offs we have to make and help to define the strategy with the executive director so that we can launch some new programs that will broaden our impact and funding for the future. Well, you can imagine my surprise after all this time when I saw in my feeds that the Atari VCS actually has a ship date. June 15th, 2021, the Atari VCS will be released into stores. Now, I don't understand because I I was in the crowdfunding campaign and I thought I was supposed to receive my console by now. And I have not. I have not received my console. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got left out of this. But if you guys aren't familiar, like 200 years ago, a company that calls itself Atari announced a console PC hybrid that runs Linux and has an interface to play games on your TV and also allows you to run whatever operating system you want in there. There's also Google Chrome built in, along with a mobile companion app for controlling Chrome and other apps with a virtual mouse and keyboard. Sounds like it's also enabled for access to other streaming services like Google's Stadia. I guess that's kind of not bad, right? If if you had a Stadia account and you wanted to hook up a console to your machine that wasn't uh, Android, I suppose. I mean, I'm stretching here. I'm stretching. When you try to go to their website right now, they're sold out of everything but hats. So you can't actually order a console, a controller, or a joystick. Um, maybe that's because they're still busy fulfilling the uh, campaign backers like me. But <laughs> it says sold out right now. But I think the idea is, at least the claim is, for about $300 on June 15th, you could go into a Best Buy and you could buy one. So are you going to do it, Wes? Are you going to pick yourself up an Atari VCS for that nice retro wood look? No, I think I'll wait for you to see if you end up with your shipment. But in the meantime, I'll take a green hat, please. Fair enough. Yeah, grab yourself a hat. Uh, I'm waiting to see. I hope I do get mine because I I will feel like it was nearly $400 well spent if it can do some streaming services, it can maybe run Cody, and it can play some of my Steam games and some of my other games that I like. And there have actually been games ported to Linux as a result of work to get them running on the Atari VCS, because essentially it's just straight up Linux. And so to get your game working on there, you, you just make it a Linux game. And there, those games are already available on Steam right now for purchase. And that's kind of nice. I mean, even if this really doesn't sell that much, it meant that we got a few more Linux native games, I suppose. There's less of a downside to it not happening, yeah. But I guess at this point, it means you're basically just paying for the console interface? Well, and of course, that sweet wood paneling. Look, check out Linux Action News every single week by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And at linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We have it right here in the studio. Don't miss our reviews of System76's launch keyboard in both Linux Unplugged and Coda Radio this week. Two very different angles, one very interesting keyboard. As for us, though, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. 